0: Good evening. Thank you very, very much for coming to this evening's talk. I appreciate it. It's a lovely sunny day outside, but here we are in a beautifully cool room, and uh, we're in for a treat. We've got hey. Dr. Carolina Waterlowska. Yes, yes. Boy, um, Talking about uh, fake surgeries and dummy pills yeah. and the challenges facing the trials Trials design. So I'll hand over to you. Thank you. Uh, good evening. So I... Uh, I'll be talking about control for, di- for bias and study design. Uh, so I'm a medic and also I did a DPhil with Irene Tracy on uh, pain imaging. So I've spent my DPhil and my postdoc years trying to understand why certain people respond to pain and what happens in their brains after uh, pain treatment. So uh, you may ask what pain has to do with trial design. The thing is that pain is very common, so pain is the main reason patients seek medical attention and pain accounts for about 22% of all GP consultations. It's estimated that during the lifespan, one in four adults in the UK will develop chronic pain condition. So it's highly likely that in one of your trials you'll have pain as an outcome. So what's pain? So according to the International Association for the Study of Pain, pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage, or described in terms of such damage. What's important about this definition is that pain is an experience. It's not just a sensation, it's a subjective experience that's very complex and multidimensional. So it's got a sensory aspect, emotional aspect, cognitive aspect. It's influenced by your past memories, your experience, but also by social and cultural aspect. If you're brought up that you have to man up, bear it, no pain, no gain, you will behave differently than people who are brought up and be allowed to express their pain and seek help. Uh, but in everyday practice and research we usually just you say that pain is whatever the experiencing person says it is and it exists whether they say it does so we cannot experience other people's pain if this guy is in pain I will not know it I cannot measure it in any objective way. The same way I will be able to measure his blood pressure. The only way for me to ask him whether he is really in pain, whether he is trying to smile but he is really suffering inside and cannot play his Xbox, is to ask. I can use questionnaires, but usually what we do we use pain scales. So those are the two most popular pain scales. We've got visual analog scale and numerical rating scale. So what we are What we do, we ask a patient or a research volunteer to rate this complex subjective experience on this unidimensional scale with relative anchors. But that's what we have and that's what we use. So in a trial, this will be our data. So we've got a baseline, we ask participants for pain ratings, then we give them treatment and we've got two follow-up visits and if the treatment works, the pain will go down. If we ask them every day we may see something like that so that's a mean change in their pain score from zero down to improved by two points. But if we have a group of patients who received a dummy pill, a placebo placebo pill, we may see something like that. So despite the fact that those people got just a sugar pill, their pain ratings went down as well. This is because what we observe as an improvement after treatment is not just a physiological effect related to the pharmacological properties of the drug. Some of it is just fluctuations of the symptoms. People have good days, people have bad days. Some of it is natural history of the disease. So for example, lower back pain, it will improve after a couple of days or weeks for some people. Uh, Some of it is just regression to the mean. So we've recruited our Patients where they're really in pain, they're really suffering and then when we ask them at the follow-up The next rating may be kind of closer to the actual mean for this person. Some of it is co-intervention So we want our patients to only take our medication But they may be naughty. They may take paracetamol when they have a bad night Or they may change something about their lifestyle. Buy a new mattress go to the gym more often because they're in the trial. And what happens in the trial, behavior of our participants will change because they know they are being observed and they know they are going to be assessed. Uh, Some of it is due to patient-doctor interactions. So we know there is research that if doctor is really nice, shows empathy, gives a clear diagnosis, nice clear prognosis and a clear treatment plan, patients are more likely to improve. Some of it may be just report bias because if the doctor is really nice, a patient may be slightly less willing to say that the treatment actually doesn't work. Patient may not want to upset the doctor. And some of it is a placebo effect. So the thing about placebo effect is that there isn't a very good definition, and it's literally what's not specific to the treatment and what cannot be explained by any of those. So definition By definition, it's an improvement in clinical symptoms or patient's well-being in response to placebo manipulations such as inactive substance of a procedure that only simulates an active therapy but itself has no specific effect. But the thing is, any pill or therapy is actually necessary. A good positive consultation may also result in what we will call a placebo effect. People just don't want to say that, oh, a positive consultation causes a placebo effect. Well, positive consultation is part of a good patient-doctor relationship. Uh, Sometimes also just diagnostic tests result in improvement of symptoms. So people actually report that they feel better after an ECG or an MRI scan. So placebo effect is just this improvement that we cannot really explain by the actual specific effect of the treatment. So this is an experiment done by my colleagues in the previous group. So they've recruited healthy pain-free volunteers and they said we are going to use this thermode to give you painful stimulus and we're also going to give you a very potent opioid and please rain the pain while you are on the drug. So first there was a baseline so they gave gave them the stimulus, and they said, could you please rate the pain for us? And this is a visual analog scale. This one is from 0 to 100, and the participants rated it as 65. And then, without telling the participants, the drug infusion started through the IV line. But the participants did know. And again, they received the painful stimulus, and they were asked to give a pain rating. And their pain rating went down. So what we have here? It's a hidden administration of an analgesic, which we kind of can assume that this is just the pure effect of the drug. What happened next was, a researcher walked, walked into the scanner and said, well, now we are actually starting the experiment. We are going to turn on the drug. They lied because the drug was already on. And this is what happened to the pain rating so they went down even even more. Nothing has changed except for the information given to the patient but because my colleagues were really cheeky, then they said well now we are finishing the experiment the drug is off could you please rate the pain again? So the participants were expecting no help from the opioid and they were just left there with their pain on their own. And this is the rating they gave. So what was really interesting about this experiment is that being told that there is no medication not only reversed the positive expectation, but it also reversed some of the effect of the drug. And this is the placebo and nocebo effect that we can observe. So what we have to remember when we use subjective outcomes like pain is that patient Patients' rating are really affected by what they believe or what they're told about the treatment. And patients believe that drugs that are invasive, so for example injection or IV drip, uh, drugs that are new, so that's why they prefer the novel drug or the experimental drug, or medication that's expensive, that's why they like random drugs. They believe that those types of treatments are more effective. And they are kind of biased to give better response after those types of drugs. The funny thing is that the power of the pill in our culture is so strong that people respond even if they know that this is a placebo. Because in our culture, we go to a doctor, we get the diagnosis, we get the prognosis and walk out with a prescription. This is part of the ritual. In a Greek culture, they may call a bowl full of herbal remedy and a prayer to read. There is actually a snippet in a Greek text saying that you have to use this herb and say the prayer. Without the prayer, it will not work. So there is this cultural setup that influences what patients experience. And this is a trial done by Ted Kapchuk in patients with Irritable bowel syndrome. So one group got no treatment, they just had interaction with the clinicians and the research staff and the other group received placebo in an open label manner. This is placebo, this is a dummy pill. It may have some effect through the mind-body interaction but it has no pharmacological effect and still patients improved much better when they were given placebo than when they were receiving no actual treatment. And now let's get to the trial design. So the reason we do a trial is because we want to test efficacy and safety of a treatment in a control manner. So usually what we do, we enroll a nice cohort of patients here, they're a very handsome and young, not always so. So what we do? We randomize them into two groups to balance out. So we've got men and women, different age, different uh, ethnicity to, to, ma- to kind of balance out everything that may potentially bias our results. And then we can allocate them to treatment, so we've got interactions with the doctor and a pill and for example no treatment. So this design will control for regression to the mean, natural history of disease, uh, fluctuation effect of being in the trial so effect of being observed but as we said patients want the novel the expensive treatment and this group will not get it which will bias the results so what we can do we can give them placebo so the power of pill is present in both arms but this group will know that actually they're getting a dummy pill and this group is still getting this novel, expensive, new drug that will potentially completely change the treatment of their disease. So that's why we need blinding. So usually what happens, the drug is usually put in external capsule or coated so so that it looks the same, uh, regardless whether inside is the active drug or a placebo. What we can do to improve the design even more is blind doctors as well. And we can blind people giving the drug, so by, by their behavior inf- or information they give or the way they give information, they do not uh, reveal the allocation to for the patients. Or we can also blind people who are assessing the outcomes because we know that by the way people ask questions and by the way they behave, they may bias patient's responses and also there is so-called Pygmalion effect, so people who are expecting certain outcome are more likely to actually see it. So that's why blinding both patients and assessors and preferentially everybody interacting with a patient throughout the trial is so important. So. We can kind of expand this design even more. So we can test new treatment with a standard treatment. So it doesn't have to be placebo. We can test whether, whether one drug is better than another, whether it's safer than another, or we can use all three. So we can compare a new drug to all treatment and to placebo. And if we make the uh, pills identical, patients will not know which treatment are, uh, they are receiving. And this is the trial. Um, I ran as my postdoc, so this was a trial in which pregabalin pretended to be the new novel treatment for pain. Tramadol was the standard treatment, so the less uh, preferred, potentially worse, and then there was also a placebo drug. So this is a placebo-controlled, crossover, three-period randomized trials with only one group. So every the the participant, every patient was their own control, so everyone received placebo, pregabalin and tramadol and there was a week of washout between, so they came down their normal medication, they received placebo then there were some tablets with increasing dose of the drug, when the dose was stable we assessed them then we gave them a new blister of medication. Then there was first, there was placebo to bring down the dose of whatever drug they were on. And then a new medication was started and that was repeated. So this is a brilliant design because you don't need a control group. You you just have to uh, recruit one group. But it's not always feasible. So for example, if your treatment is surgery, you cannot really randomize someone to surgery and then say, well, and now we'll, we'll cross over to physiotherapy it doesn't really work like that you cannot really reverse surgery. Uh, There is such a thing as placebo surgery it really exists and this is another trial so this is my second postdoc so this is a three-arm surgical trial on uh, subacromial pain so some people with age or because of the job they do for example they paint ceiling for a living they develop shoulder pain and there is a very common surgery that involves a keyhole access into the joint and the removal of, bit of a bit of a bone to create more space for the shoulder tendons. And this is believed to cure the pain. So as a placebo control, a placebo surgery, uh, those, the patients in this, in this control group only underwent the diagnostic arthroscopy, So the scope was put into the joint, a surgeon would take a look but wouldn't do anything. But a patient could not tell whether actually the anatomy was changed or not. So whether they were in the surgical arm or the control arm. And there was also no treatment arm to control for the natural history of the disease. And as you can see, we could blind between the surgical and the placebo arm but people in the non-interventional arm knew that they're not getting any surgery. And those are the results of the trial. So this is, on the y-axis, it's Oxford shoulder score, which is a composite score of pain and function. And the higher the score, the better the outcome. So you can see that at six uh, six months, uh, surgery and placebo were better than no intervention. And at 12 months, there was no difference between surgery and placebo and people in the non-intervention group had worse outcomes. So we can interpret it that surgery is not better than placebo, but the intervention still seems better than no treatment. Or if we actually assume that people who did not receive a surgery never met those handsome surgeons, never went to the surgical theatre with the machines that go beep, felt like they missed out, we could also interpret it as a nocebo effect and just simply a report bias. But this is limitation of the trial. Uh, trials, surgical trials with a placebo arm are very rare. Surgical RCTs uh, are about 15% of all RCTs published in the journals and only a fraction of them actually uses a placebo control. So many people, when you mention placebo control, think that it's absolutely ridiculous because when they think about surgery they think about something like that something really invasive performed to save life and absolutely done as a last resort. but this was in the 18th century nowadays many surgical procedures look like that they are minimally invasive, we've got antiseptics, we've got, uh, we've got analgesia, we've got antibiotics. Surgery is less dangerous, The force perform more often and the indications for surgery have changed. So now instead of, uh, of doing surgery just to save lives, we perform surgery to improve function, improve quality of life, to help people who experience pain. So, for example, all the pharmacological treatments fail, so patients are offered surgery. Therefore, outcomes have changed, so very often we use pain and function and quality of life as an outcome of surgical procedures. So that's why we may need placebo control in a trial that assesses safety and efficacy of surgery. But when we discuss placebo control, people ask, well, but what's the harm to benefit ratio? Can we even do it? Is it feasible? Because it's not just a pill, you actually have to pretend that you are performing a surgery. Uh, Is there even a placebo effect? Do we really need a control? Uh, And finally, would surgeons be willing to do it? Would they approve of placebo control? And is it even ethical? So what we've done, uh, that's what we've done. So we We've reviewed all published randomized controlled trials on surgical procedures that had a placebo control. There were no restrictions on conditions. Uh, an intervention had to be invasive, so it had to be a procedure that was believed to be therapeutic by the nature of changing anatomy. So, injecting something to deliver a drug was out, Uh, performing surgery to insert a stimulator or modulator was out. We we needed a change of anatomy to be the crucial therapeutic element. A, A comparator was called either sham or placebo or imitation, but the key point was that the crucial therapeutic element was omitted. There were no uh, restrictions on the outcomes, the study had to be a randomized controlled trials. We searched the Medline, Embase Central, but also clinicaltrials.gov to look for recently completed trials. And then we looked into references of the identified trials just in case we missed something. Uh, and we searched those databases since their um, beginning till November 2013 and then we run an update two years later. So that's what we found. So most of the interventions trialed in that design were minimally invasive. So nobody really trialed an open surgery. The most invasive ones were the seminal trials on Parkinson's disease in which a hole was drilled in somebody's skull to insert um, fetal cells into the basal ganglia. Uh, most of those trials used com- uh, com- medica- uh, other medications, so there was either L-DOPA in the Parkinson's trials, uh, or, for example, if the outcome was pain, many patients were given rescue medication to begin with. So it's not true that people were completely left without any help, they just received the placebo surgery. Uh, conditions were mostly non-life-threatening, so osteoarthritis, obesity. There were some uh, trials on bleeding esophageal um, viruses performed in the 80s when endoscopy was introduced. But since then, most of the trials were on non-life-threatening uh, conditions. Outcomes were mostly subjective, pain function, quality of life. Those trials were mainly small, uh, with fewer than 100 patients. and. Uh, the publication spanned from the late 50s to 2015, with a big spike uh, after 2000, which may be related to popularity of the minimally invasive surgery. Uh, so, are those trials risky? Generally, uh, none of those trials reported any serious adverse events reported to anesthesia, which was the biggest concern in all the pa- ethical papers. So, there are many papers discussing those potential risks of placebo-controlled surgical trials. Uh, 43% of the reviewed trials reported no serious adverse events. Uh, 6 never mentioned serious adverse events, but this is a problem with reporting of trials, especially surgical trials. In 51%, there were serious adverse events, but in two-thirds of them, they were in both uh, study arms. And... Um, in 1-6, they were only in the surgical arm. Some of them didn't say in which arm they occurred. In general, placebo arm would, was safer and associated with fewer and less severe adverse events. Uh, some, of, uh, some of those events were directly associated with the crucial surgical elements. So, for example, there were patients with endoscopy and ablations. So there was a change to the wall of the gut. And in some of the trials there was uh, perforation caused by the ablation. So this is a direct link between the crucial surgical element and um, the adverse event. In many cases the adverse events were associated with the severity of the condition itself. So for example patients were admitted to hospital because of asthma attack, but all the patients in the trial had severe asthma so some of them might have been admitted to the hospital anyway. So that's why it's kind of difficult to make a blanket generalization. Um, are those trials too difficult to complete? So we've looked at the strengths and limitations method sections and anesthesia funding or problems with blinding were not reported as obstacles in completing any of these trials. Uh, in general if there was a general anesthesia, blinding was really easy because patient was asleep and they didn't know what was happening. But in about a quarter of the trials uh, they've used local anesthesia and in those trials they've used absolutely ingenious methods to blind patients and pretend they're actually doing the real surgery. So for example in case of arthroscopy, they would manipulate the limb, splash saline on it, use a mechanical razor without the blade to pretend they're actually using devices and performing the surgery. They were asked to talk over the procedure as if they were really activating the laser asking for devices. In the three trials they actually tried to blind the surgeon so those trials included an implant and the producer of the implant uh, prepared two different applicators and one of them actually contained the implant whereas the other did not So the operator, the person actually performing the procedure, did not know whether it's a sham or the the surgery. In other um, trial, a surgeon would do everything, place the device, and then a technician would either activate it or not. So the surgeon would not know whether actually the active element was done or not. The biggest obstacle, and absolutely underestimated by many researchers, was recruitment. Uh, On average, 20% of screened patients were randomized. Only 20%. However, 75% of eligible patients were randomized into the trial, and once recruited, patients tended to stay and complete the trial. That was quite surprising. So because you're blinding patients and they don't know whether they've, they've received the actual surgery or a placebo surgery, they tend to stay in the trial they don't drop out because they're disappointed and look for treatment somewhere else. They tend to stay. But recruitment was a big obstacle and actually uh, three trials had to be terminated early because the recruitment was as slow as one patient a month. So they said, sorry, we have to call it the day. We cannot continue the trial because we've we run out of funding. So this is an example of a placebo-controlled surgical trial on uh, patients with um, knee problems and you can see that out of 476 patients screened, 286 were not eligible because they either did not have the condition or, or they were not eligible for the surgery. Out of 190 who were eligible, 102 declined participation. Some of them didn't like the idea of a trial, some didn't like surgery, some didn't like uh, placebo, so they refused. So 88 agreed to participate, but 48 were not included because it was a surgical trial, so there was an additional criterion that they had to have a particular change on the MRI. And those who did not were not eligible. So out of four hundred and seventy-six patients screened, only forty were included in the trial. And this is the thing many people don't realize why when they design a trial, that they may not have access to a sufficient number of patients within the time of the that they have to run and complete the trial. So do we need them? Do do we need those? placebo-controlled trial, is there any placebo effect? So in the reviewed trials there was an improvement in 85% of them in the surgical arm and in the placebo arm in 74%. So in, mo- in the majority there was an improvement despite the fact that it was only a fake surgery, not the real deal. Surgery was better than placebo only in 49% of these trials, which means that in over 50% there was surgery was actually not better. Uh, there was improvement only in the surgical arm in seven reviewed trials, which was about 13%. What's important, five of these, five of these trials used objective outcomes, not pain and function, but actually something measurable in an objective way. Uh, placebo was better than surgery in one trial, and no improvement was reported in any arm in 6 out of 53 uh, this is part of the forest plot, so there are two A4 pages of forest plot. Uh, and this is effect size, so this is standardized difference between the surgery and the placebo arm. We did not calculate a pooled effect because of heterogeneity of the trials. We've, uh, we've grouped them by the condition, but even within each condition, there were different procedures or different outcomes, so we simply c- could not pull them together. But overall, you can see that the effect size is small. This is a study by a different group, also on placebo-controlled surgical trials, in which they actually calculated an effect size in the surgical and placebo arm separately. And if you look at those results, I'll rotate them so they're actually vertical, you can see that the effect is generally large, but very often the difference between the surgical and the placebo arm is rather small. And this is really surprising because The active procedure here is a surgery. We are actually changing anatomy. And we would expect actually a really large effect and that will be better than a fake surgery. So what we have here is efficacy paradox. So we've got a massive response after the uh, real procedure and placebo, but the difference between them is very often non-significant. So what I was interested in is what's going on in the placebo arm. Because all the trials were so heterogeneous, we analyzed only the change in the placebo arm because then it was slightly more comparable because literally you're just comparing fake surgeries. So this is a meta-analysis of responses between the baseline and the follow-up in the placebo arm only. And this included all the uh, reviewed trials with continuous outcomes because we are interested in the magnitude of the effect and the effect of time. So you can see trials subdivided by the outcome type and they're also ordered by the duration of the follow-up from a couple of days to two years at the very bottom. And this is the same here within uh, each subgroup. So you can see that for subjective outcomes, there was a large, a significant effect. And for assessed and objective outcomes, the pooled effect was not significant and those whiskers are not confidence intervals those are prediction intervals. So from this we can see that there doesn't seem to be a strong effect of time but there seem to be a really strong effect of the outcome type. So what we've done we've looked only at trials with pain as an outcome, okay fine let's make it slightly more heterogeneous, let's look at subgroups so those are trials only with pain as an outcome assessed at primary outcome uh, time point and you can see big effect, this 0.78 huge effect, significant for all the trials and stays significant for 24 months And. If the outcome is objective, so those are trials um, in which weight loss weight, was used as an outcome, which is an absolute objective outcome, you, put, you step on the scale, there is a number. Whether you're happy, unhappy, whether you've been uh, told the good news or bad news, it's just a number, you cannot affect it. And you can see that the effect was not significant in any of the trials, the pooled effect is not significant, and there seemed to be a bit of an effect of time. So we've done a meta-regression, so this is actually a beta um, coefficient showed as a forest plot for every factor that was reported in the literature as potentially uh, affecting the magnitude of placebo response. And there was no effect of time, uh, no no difference whether the outcome was assessed or objective. There was a large effect of subjective outcomes versus objective. It didn't matter whether there was a standard or rescue medication. It didn't matter whether, whether the trial was done in the States or in Europe. And it didn't matter. How? what was the, the chance of getting the active treatment, whether the randomization ratio was 1 to 1 or 3 to 1. But we've got stats, we can do it even better, so what we've done, we've actually we've taken every single time point for every rev- uh, reviewed trial with a continuous um, outcome and done the analysis across all time points and all visits because some tri- in some trials there were multiple follow-up visits. And you can see that overall there was a significant placebo effect that seemed rather flat. It wasn't really what I was expecting so I was expecting the placebo effect to decrease with time because you have to remember this is not a pharmacological trial. In all those trials there was only one surgery at the beginning and then the only thing we do we keep following patients up and asking them is your pain still better? Have you improved? Could you please rate it for me? Could you please rate your symptoms? Because we knew that the type of outcome actually matters we've done this analysis by subdividing trials by the outcome type. So in red you can see trials with subjective outcome, in blue with assessed we have very few trials that's why the confidence intervals are massive and in green you can see trials with objective outcome but because those are trial mostly on obesity the effect seems to decrease which may be related to the fact that in obesity trials people tend to stick to diet and uh, lifestyle changes at the beginning and then they slip back to the old habits but for subjective outcomes like pain function quality of life there is a Big, highly significant effect that remains highly significant for 12 months that's 12 and that's seven visits so if we don't have a control arm an effect like that will be interpreted as amazing success of our surgery so just to finish up so we've also asked surgeons what they think about placebo so we gave a uh, Short survey to 100 surgical members of the British Elbow and Shoulder Society at one of their conferences and ask them how often do you use operations that you believe may have a significant placebo component? So, surgeons are notorious for not admitting that what they do may not be actually specifically effective. This is well, this is not surprising because, unlike doctors who just give a pill made by A big pharma company, surgeons actually have to go there and perform the surgery. So they have to believe that what they do is actually helpful and effective. So 42% said never, I've never done anything that wasn't directly helpful and effective. Uh, But 21% said rarely, less than once a year, 24% of 24% more than once a year and 30% said more than once a month I do something that I believe may actually be placebo. So we've asked them, what's your position concerning the use of placebo? And only 4% said it should be always prohibited. I disagree, it should not be used I, I'm, I'm op- opposed. But 46% said it should be permi- permitted only in clinical research but 50% said well actually it should be permitted in a cl- clinical practice if research supports it or it should be permitted in clinical practice if experience in the departments supports it, its efficacy. So we have to remember that this is what people say not what people do. But we were still surprised that the response was quite positive and the main concern that they had was deception. So surgeons were generally opposed to lying to patients or deceiving them in any way. So as long as you actually disclose that this is a placebo surgery, they were quite okay with the concept. And, and finally, ethical issues. So with Professor Julian Savulescu, we We've suggested that actually surgical trials are not that different from pharmacological trials. So as long as there is an equipoise, so lack of clear evidence that this treatment is truly effective and really superior than no treatment or physiotherapy, such a trial is justified. Uh, there should be some preliminary, uh, preliminary evidence that the surgery is effective. So like those trials I mentioned earlier, then they've done a placebo-controlled surgical trial and there was no improvement in neither of the arms. There was really no point doing that. But if we actually perform a surgery like the shoulder surgery, and patients tend to improve, but they also perf- improve after physiotherapy. So there is some evidence of efficacy, but we don't know whether it's actually due to surgery or placebo, there, there is definitely a sense to run a placebo-controlled randomized trial. Uh, it's also not no point to run a trial if there is just a small improvement. So we want things like the shoulder surgery. There are t- hundreds of thousands of those surgeries performed every year and the number of surgeries uh, of sorry operated patients increased seven times between 2000 and 2010. So this is something performed very, very often. So if it's not necessary, we save money, we save time, we save NHS resources, and also instead of sending uh, patients to wait for surgery, we can just offer them physiotherapy, and they'll get get equally effective treatment much sooner. Uh, We definitely propose that harms should be minimised, and like in the placebo-controlled shoulder trial, if there is an option to offer direct benefits to patients in the placebo arm. For example, like diagnostic arthroscopy or laparoscopy, they should be offered. And finally, there should be no deception. And I would like to finish with a quote by Cobb, who did a placebo-controlled trial on efficacy of uh, increasing blood flow to the heart in the 60s. So he said that after observing some of the dramatic results afforded by only minor bilateral thoracic skin incision, so they've actually did did a tiny cut, one seriously questions how much of the reported clinical improvement after thoracotomy is actually dependent upon the patient's uh, psychological reaction to surgery rather than an enhancement of coronary artery blood flow or other physiologic alteration. Thank you very much for your attention.